Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. One of the most iconic movies of the 21st century is The Wolf of Wall Street. It received five Oscar nominations, including a Best Director nomination for Martin Scorsese and a Best Actor nomination for Leonardo DiCaprio. It's also the movie that launched Margot Robbie into superstardom in her first major role playing the character of Naomi. But as well-made and entertaining as the movie is, it can be easy to forget it's based on a harrowing true story. For Nadine Macaluso, The Wolf of Wall Street wasn't just a movie. It was the experience of seeing her traumatic abuse projected on theater screens for the world to see. Nadine is the real-life ex-wife of Jordan Belfort. And Margot Robbie's character of Naomi, or the Duchess of Bay Ridge, as she was nicknamed, is based on her true life experiences. However, as she reveals in this interview, she had no input on the film itself or how she was portrayed. In today's conversation, I talked to Nadine about the exploitation of her trauma in books and films, her tumultuous marriage to and escape from the Wolf of Wall Street himself, Jordan Belfort and her brand new book, Run Like Hell, that helps women trapped in abusive relationships. Here's my conversation with Nadine Macaluso. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, Dr. Nay, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you for having me. I mean, first and foremost, I want to say thank you for your book. Um, As someone who does a show like this, I'm always looking for resources to help better understand ununderstandable situations. Um, so it's been it's been very helpful, and I enjoyed reading it. Um, I'm curious, just right off the bat, um, you said in the beginning of your book that your intention is never to glorify abusive relationships, even though you're going to talk very openly about them. There's been a lot of critiques about a certain film that featured <laughs> you as a character. And the conversation surrounding Wolf of Wall Street, you know, the people that love it say it just shows the situation. It doesn't glorify. Critics say it does glorify. People hang posters of, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio all over their wall and and say it motivates them. Do you think that Wolf of Wall Street glorifies uh, a very abusive situation? I do. I do. As someone who lived through it. I do think that the movie does glorify it. And 
the movie actually makes it a farce and makes it funny. And some of it, of course, was funny, but most of it was not so funny. So I do think they glorify it. And I think they had to, to make it entertaining. When I watched it, love the movie. I'm a huge Scorsese yes. fan. So like it, as a, as a film, it's entertaining. And then you read your book and you see like, and you describe it like the Greek tragedy on screen and yeah. it's this award-winning film. And then you start reading the true story behind it and you start questioning. It's the age old conversation of what's appropriate, what's not like, do you feel any like resentment or like this shouldn't have been made in this way? Do you separate it as like, okay, that's art. This is my story. I, they didn't necessarily owe me any kind of, you know, consideration there. Like, where do you put that? Because it's in the cultural zeitgeist, everybody has a different entry point to it. And yours is very personal. Well, you know, and this is where therapy really comes in handy. So I did a lot of therapy because you remember Jordan wrote a book first. So I kind of got um, titrated into the process through the book. Right. And then the movie happened. And so I had done so much therapy around it that my own personal experience was this is clearly something that's much bigger than me. And I'm going to surrender into the process. And that was my mindset. Did you have a hand in that process at all? Like, did they talk to you and ask for that? No, okay. no I had no, I had no creative input. I made no money. The only thing I did do was meet Margot Robbie because they wanted to get my accent. And that's why they don't use my name. Because I told them, you can't, you can't use my name. I mean, not that it really mattered. That was like my own personal. Yeah, everybody connected the dots. That was my own personal stance. But no, I had no input into it at all, except for my likeness, right? Sure, right. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So you mentioned the book. Obviously, Jordan kind of exploited the trauma through writing yes. the book. And I'm fascinated by him. I think. That's the reason there's a movie. It's the reason there's so much about him. I'm just fascinated that he still loves the movie, promotes the movie, shares his story very proudly. And this may be a softball question, but how is he so proud of a biography? Yeah. That most people would say this is the most shameful parts <laughs> of my life. Yeah. And I think that's the juxtaposition of the movie that makes it so interesting, right? Because it shows the different um, sides of somebody like this. But my perspective is that a person such as Jordan will exploit anyone or anyone, including himself, to get his need met for money, power, pleasure, or status. And that's part of who he is as a person. So it really is the epitome of no bad press, you know, like all presses. Yeah. Yeah. He'll exploit me. He'll exploit the trauma. He'll exploit himself. Because again, he wants to get his needs met for money, power, pleasure, and status. There's the age old question, does power corrupt or do corrupt people seek power? Do you think that he, from the very beginning, always was looking for ways to abuse and manipulate power? Or do you think it was a situation of power corrupting somebody? I think it's probably both. Okay. Yeah, I think there's multiple causality and things like that. But I definitely think he is someone who was drawn to power and being powerful. Do you think some people are just inherently 
predisposed to that? Or do you think yes. always is? Okay. I do. I think due to their personality. Because personality drives behavior. Now, it could be their personality, their innate personality combined with their environment, right? That then creates this perspective or lens through which they see the world. Do you think there's some people for which there's no hope? Like some people are born with a personality that is inherently looking for the worst things? Or is it something where, you know, early on, if you can identify it and catch it, you can kind of work through those things? You know, I wouldn't be a therapist if I didn't think people could cha- couldn't change, right? So I'm in the business of change. Uh, I do think, and I and I've seen people that are quite pathological change. I, I have seen that, but I think at a certain level of pathology, I think the rewards that they get are too good. The cre- the cozy comforts of being powerful and dominating, intimidating. Why would they change? Yeah. We, we may circle back on that point, but this kind of leads sure. directly to one of the questions that I had early on. You said in your book, which I loved, abuse is a problem that lies entirely with, with the abuser. And you know, I think that's really relevant because a lot of people are blamed by society. Yes. They blame yes. themselves for being stuck in abusive situations. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious, when we talk about the problem lying with the abuser, and mm-hmm. oftentimes they don't want to change. Where does the solution to an abusive situation lie? Is that 100% in the hands of the victim? Is there ever a point at which the the abuser plays a role in that? And if so, what role do they play? The the solution when you're in an abusive relationship is to recognize the abuse. But the thing is that um, non-physical abuse, such as emotional and verbal abuse, they're very tricky. Unless you really understand the brainwashing, the mind mapping, the gaslighting, right? Um, the, the Darvo tactics, you don't really get it. And the, it's very convoluted. So I think the first thing is to, for the victim to recognize it. And then once you recognize it, and that's why I wrote my book and why we're having this conversation is to run like hell. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's That's really the only solution because as we know, we can't change or control anybody else. It sounds like the idea is they may be able to change, but it's not your responsibility to stay and change. Exactly. And and people have to want to change. I mean, change is inevitable, right? And, but people have to want to change. And again, if they get a lot of, if they're getting their needs met, why would they change? It works. And culture rewards, like the yes. reward and- um, that's what's so tricky about all of this is that when you look at the surface, I mean, Jordan is very charismatic and he is easy to listen to and entertain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so many of these people, it, it's funny because I grew up obviously in a fundamentalist Christian environment, which sounds worlds apart from <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street. Um, <laughs> but when I watched it, I literally said, I was like, they could make a movie like this about megachurch pastors who literally crave all of these same things. Yes. You know, maybe yes. it's not as explicit, but you're right. Like to 99% of the population, they look motivated, driven, powerful, and impressive. To the 1% that sees them behind closed doors, they're seeing a totally different version. So correct. I want to ask in regards to that, it's difficult enough to say to someone, hey, run like hell. It's even more difficult to say that when maybe their own family loves their husband or loves the person they're with, or the husband's family is saying, hey, he's a good guy, really, 
like you saw a couple bad things. That's not really him. Like, how do you go about not only identifying abuse that you need to run away from, but also alerting other people around you who are still believing that you're the bad guy, like you're leaving someone who is just misunderstood. Yeah. Well, that's the tricky part because these things are so layered, right? And usually the perpetrator or pathological person does not really demonstrate all of their horrible, abusive, controlling qualities to the public or to even their family. Um, and And it is super hard. And that's why I wrote my book is because I have so much empathy for the victim. I know how hard it is and how nobody believes you when people say you're enabling and you're codependent and that, and it's, it's, it's just such a hard situation. So that's why I think that therapy saved my life because a good therapist will always connect you to your authenticity and really trusting more than your mind, trusting your body and your gut that no matter how much I try to convince myself, this isn't right or how much others try to convince me. Something is fundamentally wrong. And when it comes to trusting yourself with all of these cases, when you first meet them, they seem great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you you mentioned in the book, like if a you know pathological lover, they present a stable personality when you first meet them. Yes. And that scares me in every context. <laughs> I know. First impressions are everything, right? Yes. And you say, trust yourself. Trust beyond just your heart, but trust your instincts, trust your gut. Yeah. If someone is so good at putting up that facade and presenting a personality or a mask, how do you go about meeting anybody and trusting your first instincts about them? I know. Well, that's here. You bring up a great point. Here's the thing. Trust has to be earned. Right. So I I think I write about this and that, especially for my own self, I just blindly trusted. You know, I just gave my trust too willingly. And so trust has to be earned, first of all, and that takes time. And the mask does start to fall pretty quickly, especially if you know the signs, you know. And so six months to a year in, it it will start to fall because the person is who they are. I used to always ask on the show, I used to ask people, what was the first red flag you noticed? And then I realized that's not practically helpful to people because the real story is what is the first red flag you should have noticed? So for people who are listening, they're probably thinking, oh, did I blow past 60 red flags and I'm not noticing anything? Mm -hmm. What are some of the first things that people may notice when that mask starts to slip? Well, some of the first things are someone who doesn't respect your boundaries. And that's a very nuanced experience, right? So if you try to say to somebody, you know, like I did with my ex-husband, I I really don't want to get married right now. He was like, if you don't want to marry me, if you don't want to marry me, we're not dating. I was like, oh, God. Right. So that can choice there. Right. So they're taking away your power. They're being super controlling. They're crossing your boundaries. If you see any substance abuse. So those are things that I would really look for is crossing the boundaries, monopolizing all your time, trying to control you, not giving you the space to be you. And you slowly start to notice that over time. Like losing yourself. Losing yourself is the first symptom. Yes. Yeah. That's a really great perspective. And I think it applies even beyond 
relationships, but I think even in a corporate setting, like this questions about, are you in a cultish environment? Are you an ACE group that doesn't, and I think that losing your own identity and joining that collective identity of whether it's a yes. couple or whether it's 2000 people in yes. Orient, that's a really good thing to look out for. Yeah. You have to lose your identity to keep the couple's identity. And some other things is that what you'll find is that they they blame you for everything and they lack empathy, right? So they victim signal a lot and they lack empathy when they hurt you. So boundaries, lacking empathy, victim signaling, you having to lose yourself. Those are the things you really need to watch for. Can you explain victim signaling? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So victim signaling, this type of personality, it's an actually a psychological term that's been researched. They will claim to be your victim, even though they will be the perpetrator and they victim signal on purpose, like, oh, I can't believe that happened to me. Or you really hurt my feelings, you know, even though you're just sticking up for yourself because they cheated on you, right? But they do that to elicit your empathy, right? So they're, so they're doing it on purpose. Yeah, they're preying on your best qualities. Exactly. They're weaponizing your empathy, your kindness, your tolerance, your compassion. And you're just like, oh, maybe I did hurt them. Maybe it wasn't so bad what they did, sure. right? Right. And And it's something too, like you mentioned in the book, like about predators kind of mapping out yeah. you, getting to know what you love, getting to know what you're interested in, getting to know your past traumas in a lot of these cases. I, I have to add, like, this all sounds so strategic and I've done enough stories and covered enough of these where like, <laughs> there's a formula to this enough to write a book about. Yes. <laughs> but my question always goes back to like, where do they learn these formulas? Is it literally just something that is just mimicked from seeing other behavior? Is it something that just your mind functions the same way? Like, why does it feel like there's a playbook passed out across religious backgrounds and business <laughs> backgrounds and states and countries? Like, why does it feel like there's such a playbook to have this down to a science with how these guys operate? Right. So let's think about it. So if we look at their behavior, we have to go behind the behavior and look at their motivation. All of their motivation is the same. They will use, exploit, lie, and betray anybody to get their needs met for power, pleasure, money, and status. They feel entitled to it. They feel superior and they have no moral compass. So that's what's happening behind the scenes that's pretty standard across all of these personalities or all these person, all these people. So because that's their modus, modus operandi, right? These are really good ways to make that happen. And they've tried them enough to know, or they've seen them enough to know, uh, you know, and we're in a society that rewards those things over compassion, connection, emotions, hum humility. Yeah, all those virtues. And it is, it, you can extrapolate it back to the American dream and the, the things yeah. that we view as yes. success. Yes. And, you know, I've seen this phenomenon over the past year or so with, I mean, even before that, I mean, I look at Jordan now, who still proudly is the Wolf of Wall Street. I look at people like yes. Andrew Tate over the last several, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ooh. the last two years, but especially the last year, this kind of, I mean, meteoric rise to prominence, teaching what is essentially a playbook on how to, I mean, 
at the expense of everybody else, achieve yeah. these grandiose visions yes. for yourself. Greed has been around since the beginning of time. I don't see it going away. You know, I grew up in the era where, you know, Michael Douglas on Wall Street actually told us greed is good, right? So that 80 and 90s time was really a time where th that was pumped down our throats. And so I think having these conversations where there are other things that are good, that are intangibles too, you know? And so I, I don't know that we can change that, but I think we can shift the conversation and we can also shift what we value. I think that's great. The The shifting of values is huge because it is something when it goes to like what you want most and that's what you're pursuing. It's like rethinking what you want most, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. You want to have a sweet house and a wife that hates you because you're a total jerk, you know? Right. Or do you want kids that don't want to talk to you, but you've got a fortune 500 company, you know? That's like, right. Those are all that's right. Alignments of values. Um, yes. And and remember, if you don't have a moral compass, it's very hard to have healthy values. Yeah, that probably hurts. Uh, hurts <laughs> you think about uh, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, the Boy Scout leaders. I mean, we're we're seeing this in very extreme ways. Yeah, definitely. Well, I I want to talk a little bit about like the process of leaving um, because mm. obviously your book's titled "Run Like Hell." These mm. guys with you know, if you're with somebody with no moral compass and who is exhibiting all these traits, running like hell is probably a great option. Yes, I, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, like I said, it's it's easier said than done. Um, would you mind if you're open to it, kind of sharing when you realized you needed to run personally and sure. what that experience was like? And then on the flip side of that, what would your advice be to someone who is about to go through that, is considering doing that? Like what mistakes could they avoid that would make it a uh, a less dangerous or less, you know, it, no matter what, it's going to be difficult, but a less damaging yeah. experience yeah. for them. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. I, I think I, all along I was feeling trapped and unsafe and insecure and used and just not seen, right? I think, but then I had a child and another child. And like you say, families are involved and money's involved. and. And, and I, I was in therapy, but we all have a last straw moment. And my last straw moment was when I, and I talk about this, you know, in a lot of my TikToks or videos, when I told my ex-husband, you have to get sober because I don't want to sit here and watch you kill yourself. And he threw my clothing and jewelry and lit them on fire and got violent with me and uh, drove my daughter into the garage door. And that, and he did get sober, which was the great news. So, but I could never come back from that moment. But I didn't really feel safe enough to leave because he was very powerful, had a lot of money. Um, and I always say I was kind of lucky in that he got arrested. Because he got arrested, he had an ankle bracelet, and I then felt safe enough 
to leave because I was like, okay, now the world sees that he's a criminal. He's been an emotional criminal with me, right? But the world sees it now. So there was that validation and then I left. And so people say, oh, you left him because he lost his money. No, no, no. Uh, no. You know, and I want to be very clear about that. It was because I felt safe enough. And I know some women, you know, they don't ever get that moment where they can feel safe enough. And a lot of times they just feel so unsafe or the abuse has just been so much. Something inside of them just says no more. And and do you think there's also like a sunk cost fallacy where, you know, we already have kids, we've already bought a house together, we've already done this. Like, do you think that's a motivating factor a lot of times as well? Like we sure. are already in this deep in this relationship, like Sure. Yeah. And financial dependency is real. And having children with someone is real. You know, um, let's say also if you have some sort of physical illness and you're not your best self, or let's say you're older and you don't feel like you have the strength. I mean, I think there are a lot of very real life components that make it very hard to leave. And yet you can still. If someone's listening, they're in a situation like this and they're thinking, how do I do this safely? Or how do I do this in a way that, you know, doesn't lead to either physical harm or being, you know, abused even further? How do you safely exit a situation like this? Like, what are some of the biggest, like- Yeah, yeah. My, My number one thing is never let them see you coming. Because you're at the end, you know, in a trauma bond, at the bottom of it is about control. All abuse is about control. And so- you don't want them to know that they're going to lose control over you because it's just going to incite them and ignite them. And the last thing you need as you're trying to plan your escape is this pathological person upping the ante on their crazy behavior. So you have to be just as strategic as they were in manipulating you. And it's hard for the women I work with. I feel guilty. I'm doing this behind their back. I don't know if I can do this. And I'm like, well, you have to do it to stay safe because you have to plan financially. Don't ever tell them when they're on drugs like I did, um, which was a big mistake, right? So the the number one thing is get a therapist. If you're going to get divorced, get a good lawyer that's an expert in leaving a pathological person, not just a regular divorce coach. Get highly educated and um, don't let them see you coming and really plan for it. What about with kids? And again, if you're open to discussing that, yeah. I'm curious, you know, how do you go about even explaining that? Because I have to imagine too, this is not uncommon in any family situation, but kids have a different interaction with their mom or their dad sure. than the mom and dad have with each other at times. Sure. So the dad could be the hero and they always do amazing birthday gifts, you know, and they always do this, but man, mom's really mean to him. You know, like, how do you go about having those conversations and explaining to them without also doing damage to them by making them rethink their entire childhood and their own parents? Like, how do you go about navigating that process with children? Yeah, which is, it's a very tricky process. Uh, my, My piece of advice there is, even though you might dislike your ex, don't disparage them. That doesn't do the child any good. Now, you can be factual with them in an age developmentally appropriate way about what happened. 
but you, it doesn't do you any good to disparage your ex. You know, get your negative feelings out towards them with your friends, with your family, with your therapist, but just continually talking poorly about them isn't fair to the child or the children. Yeah, I like and that's that speaking what, factual. I like that advice. Yeah. Versus, it, you know, saying he did some things that were not right versus right. going, your dad's right 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 and i have to say you know jordan and i we've always done a very good job with our children and our children are great and that's why when the movie came out they weren't freaked out because we had already processed it ad nauseum they weren't like oh my god they were like oh yeah that's my dad he's extreme he's you know he's over the top so, but that's, that's my piece of advice because they'll show who they are over time anyway. And it's your child's job as they get older to figure out the type of relationship that they want to have with them. You know, unless they're super, super young and you have to protect them and there's physical violence. I mean, that's a separate issue, of course. Yeah. Yeah. When you get into like physical or sexual violence, it's a totally yeah, that's, that's totally uh, different. Yeah. And that's good to clarify. Like specifically when it gets to emotional, you know, and that can be such a subjective thing on the outside where yeah, again they have to see it for themselves, you know. I think Yeah, and my and my children have been in therapy since they're since they're 16, 15 years old. My daughter's a therapist, <laughs> friends oh, wow. and family. Yeah. So, yeah, so um we've always been very interested in our emotional life yeah. and our relationships because they take work and effort. Yeah, they definitely do. Definitely do. Well, I'm I'm curious about this. One of the things you said in your book was you're talking about how people deal with situations like this. And you talked, you mentioned a statement very early on that shocked me. And you said women are tend to be, or females tend to be more emotional than men. And I instantly flashed in my mind to scenes from films like Wolf of Wall Street or stories like that. And I- yeah. If anyone looks emotionally unhinged, it is a lot of the uh, abusive men that I've covered on this show. Um, yes. I'm curious, do you think that, is there some kind of research on that as far as like what that means as far as how emotions are processed? Do you think it's just more noticeable when women have an outburst of anger or frustration in these situations because culture so vilifies those expressions of emotion. I was just curious mm-hmm. the context of the quote from a. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that women value their emotional internal life more than men, so they do feel more comfortable expressing the more vulnerable emotions, like sadness or despair or longing or you know real hurt and around betrayal and stuff like that. And I think in society, we don't really value emotional expression. So I do think women do get vilified for expressing those emotions. And I think, yes, those men for sure express something that I call um, humiliated fury, which is a mix of entitlement, rage, and shame. And we don't judge men as much for having extreme expressions of anger. Like for them, almost anger is like okay for them to express. They that can't express the personality. Yeah. Yeah. They can't express the more vulnerable ones. So I just think in general, women are more at peace with their emotions. Hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. I love that explanation because it was something that took me off guard because I was like, <laughs> I was like, what does this mean? <laughs> How are we approaching this? And yeah, it sounds like even in that answer, it sounds like there's a lot of cultural impact on that. I, I think of course. It, it's one of the things, I mean, I know growing up, like one of the conversations a lot of times with leadership in our church environment was, you know, Eric is so emotional. Eric's too emotional. Eric's that. Um, and but then on the flip side, you're seeing pastors get in the pulpit and scream for an hour about a topic. And you're like, that's right. very emotional. Yes. <laughs> like yes. More acceptable form of emotion. Yes. In their eyes. Right. 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 Yeah. And that's a culturally larger conversation. Like men are supposed to be more stoic. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of just age old stereotypes sure. that I think put sure. in these odd boxes. But in addition to that, like there's a lot of reactions and emotions associated with being in these relationships. Um, yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of times, you know, there can be judgment towards someone who is frustrated being in a situation with an abusive individual or if people yeah. can say, hey, you're not feeling the right way about it. You're not reacting the right way about it. You're not expressing or handling the situation the way I would handle it. Um, one statement that I quote all the time from Viktor Frankl is the idea that there's no um, abnormal reaction to abnormal situations. Um, yeah. Do you yeah. agree with that statement? Do you yes. think, I, I know you can pathologize a little bit and here's some things that people experience, but do you feel like there's really a set, hey, everybody reacts one of these few ways, or is it always its own unique situation? You know, I think after you've been intimidated, dominated, threatened, and controlled and abused. Might be angry. <laughs> yeah. You might have something, you might you might have a reaction, right? And so I, I actually did a video about this the other day. Like, if you were on the street and a stranger came up to you and started to attack you and curse you out, and you reacted, would somebody say that's abuse? mutual abuse, they wouldn't, you know, I mean, I remember, I've never spoken about this, but when Jordan was pressuring me, and I have to laugh at myself and I have to own this, to have children, and he was pressuring me and pressuring me and pressuring me, and I'm so glad I have my children, I have no regrets. I think I literally took a glass Tropicana juice jar and threw it at his head from across the living room, <laughs> okay? I am not a violent person. Yeah, I was 23 at the time, so I have to give my 23-year-old some grace. And I wouldn't do that today as a more emotionally regulated, mature woman. But yeah, I just couldn't take it anymore. Was that a constant? Was it was it constant? I want this now. Here's the Yes. It was constantly, it was constantly like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having children was such a such an like a big life topic. Right. It wasn't just like, I want to go to this restaurant, you know, yeah. and I just, I just, you know, yeah, I, I was, I had my own reaction to it. For him, it seems like he was kind of writing the book of his own life and he needed characters to play parts. Where yes. Like, now I need yes. to check off having the kids and now I need to have the, you know, this thing and this thing. And that's a lot of pressure to be under, you know, to be, yeah. that has to fulfill all of those things. And hence you lose yourself as it didn't matter what I wanted. I was only going to be the ones carrying the babies, having the babies, caring for the babies. You know, my needs were of no consequence. Yeah. And like you said, that emotional outburst is going to happen at some point. Yes. Um, this is a good place, I think, to kind of outline. You, you mentioned Darvo in the book. I think people yeah. who listen may be familiar with this. 
but a lot of this really, I mean, you can see this play out in so many relationships. Um, I thought it would be a good way to kind of explain it. I don't think I've broken it down on the show. I think in okay. different posts, we've talked about it. It's kind yeah. of, we just haven't used the phrase, but I think it's one people should get familiar with. Yes. Um, so when you get in a situation where you confront an abuser, um, mm-hmm. Darvo can be employed by them. Let's talk a little bit about what that is. Yeah. So DARVO stands for deny, attack, and then reverse the victim and offender. And so at first, what happens is the pathological person will deny it. They'll say something like, I don't remember that happening. That never happens. Right. But then they'll attack your credibility or attack you. Like no one would believe you anyway if you said anything about that. You actually, or you actually provoked me. You made me do that. And then they reverse it. Even though you're the one that's been suffering, you know, at their hands, let's just say, they'll just become the victim again, right? So it employs the victim signaling again, like, I'm actually the one that's suffering the most. You did this to me. And so it really, it's, I say it's like gaslighting on steroids, but it's, but so it's deny that never happened, attack, you're actually the one that did it, and I'm actually the one that's suffering. And so that gets played out repeatedly throughout the relationship and really is a very strong mind game. And people really use it after yeah. separation too. I never pressed you to have kids. You're actually yeah. the one that lost your temper and threw a glass. Yeah. Door. Look how crazy you are. Get it together. Look, I'm unsafe here. doing this? Yeah. Right. Right, right. And and a, I just read a really interesting article that um, I had never read before, and I love learning all the time, as you can tell, um, how defamation is Darvo. Hmm. I've never thought about that, but yeah, it very much is. You could think about that like, I never did that to you, you're making that up, and now you have to pay the consequences. And I had never thought about that. I had just read it. And I was like, oh, God. Wow, that is really interesting. That's something, uh, wow, that's right. I'm going to be thinking about a lot of different situations in that context because that very much, so we just did a documentary series on clergy abuse. And it's very interesting because a a pastor got up in the pulpit and started um, just trying to discredit some of the survivors that were featured, even though they've won lawsuits and have put abusers behind bars. He's still yeah. very much going, um, you know, I didn't know anything happened. These women are crying big crocodile tears and yep. trying to get a payout. And they're just trying to broad brush all churches like us. So you literally have deny, attack, reverse offender and victim in that statement. In that and statement. He's literally defaming these women who've come forward where there's on the books They've been proven to be correct. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Jennifer Freyd is the one who came up with the term Darbo, F-R-E-Y-D. So you can look look it up. She's written a lot of really interesting articles about it. That's fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to have to uh, go back through some clips and start posting some examples with that framework. Good. Really interesting. Good. Um, I'm curious too, like we were kind of touching on systems and like the, the, the individual, you know, attacking somebody, uh, it typically in these cases with male abusers, and I know you say in your book, and I want to clarify for people listening, this can happen in reverse order. There can be female, of course, abusers, 
Um, of course, but obviously you're writing from your own experience, from your clients, which are largely female, like, yes. So we're not d- discounting those experiences. Not at all. Not but at all. Coming into the male side and focusing in on that. I am curious, like, yes, there's the individual, but also there are systems that enable, right? Whether it's yes. the boys club at the office, whether it's a patriarchal system within a religious denomination. Um, you mentioned patriarchy for a little bit within yes. your book. Yes. And um, strict adherence to those structures is very prevalent in the group that my listeners would be familiar with. Um, okay. How do you see like those rigid patriarchal beliefs affecting women who are trapped in these relationships? Because oftentimes right. they're not allowed to have jobs. They're the you know, barefoot pregnant in the kitchen. There is those cliches that are enforced by their leaders, their parents. Like, how does it, how do you even navigate that mess and how does it affect them in those yeah. situations? I, I try to do this very simply with patriarchy because it's such a hot button, <laughs> you know, but patriarchy is basically a hierarchy, right? One person's above and has the power and one person is below, right? And that's what a trauma bond is about. It's about, it has to include a power imbalance or else it doesn't exist. So in the patriarchy, one person has the power, one person doesn't. And what I, and really what I think of feminism as, and Terry Real, the great uh, relationship expert, talks about this, is just everybody being able to be in their own power, which is simply the ability to influence yourself and be connected. So we want to look for relationships like that where there's more of a collaborative, equal connection. With, with that in mind, you know, for someone who's leaving that type of system, leaving that type of relationship, the idea of dating again, finding love, yes. true love at that point is a very scary thing. It looks like from your social media, you're in a very healthy and happy relationship. Yes. Yes, yes. Someone who seems very different than perhaps past experiences. So um, yeah. I'm curious for you, how did you know, how did you develop enough trust in yourself to pursue another relationship? Yeah. And how did you go about feeling comfortable with that level of commitment, even after having the ultimate betrayal of one gone wrong? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, part of it, I think I was young. I was 31, so I was still naive and hopeful. So I think that adds to it. Um, And yeah, it was very, very hard to trust again, extraordinarily hard and empathize with people who were in that process. But it was also really learning to trust myself and of course, to take a leap of faith. But there were certain green flags. And the first argument that I had with my husband, my current husband of 24 years or disagreement, and he was like, yeah, I hear you. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, you would have thought he said to me, I'm going to take you to Mars on a spaceship and you're going to be the queen of Mars. Like it was so out of my box of ordinary after my past marriage. And he was able to have empathy. I could have needs in the relationship. I could actually get taken care of. And I'll never forget my therapist said to me when I was married to Jordan, because I love to cook and I... I'm a caretaker. I love to entertain. She was like, you know, one day you're going to find somebody who's going to cook for you. I was like, get the hell out of here. I found somebody who made me pizza every night. I mean, every every Friday night. 
who bring me my coffee in the morning, who it was more reciprocity with the caretaking. So there are green flags too. That's really cool. And I think that's really beautiful for people to hear that there is something. Because I, I know, regardless of the context, when people come out of a difficult situation, it can be extremely hard to feel. Sure. You can feel like that's game over. And especially, yeah. I think you mentioned, yeah, you're young and hopeful. But I also think when you're young, there's a level of feeling older than you are. Yes, for sure. Yeah. And so for sure. I mean, I'm 28 and I find myself contemplating like, man, when I pass away, you know, or when <laughs> I do this, and then I start thinking like, got like 40, 50 years before I even need to be thinking about that. But it's that yeah. level of like, I'm trying to grow up, but also yeah. I'm hopeful for the future. And I think for a lot of times, people like myself in my 20s, it's it's hard when a business thing goes wrong, when a relationship sure. goes wrong. To sure. not go, oh, this is the end of my life. This is the end of, <laughs> and I can't imagine being in a situation like, you know, so many people probably resonate with that you've shared. It is, it's got to really feel like that. Like, oh, this was my happily ever after. And now it's not, what do I do? Yeah. So I love I, that there's. I want to just say two things about that. I think first of all, as a therapist, I work with all my patients that rejection, failure, heartache, uh, mistakes, they're all inevitable. Hmm. It just means you're trying. Yeah. Kind of like to reframe that. And I think if you do have a dream of this happily ever after and it does fail, to really allow yourself the space to grieve for what you thought could be. And by the way, I want to say you're you're only 28. You're, you're succeeding. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That's That's good to know. <laughs> Um, um, no, it's, it's, it's really cool. It's, I love that reframe and, and it is, it's that idea of like, I'm moving forward. So there's going to be, there's going to be things that happen. And you mentioned space to grieve. Um, this is something too, that I think can be difficult is you could sit there and we, it's the old example of the guy that wanted to play in the NFL and had an injury in high school. And he spent, he's 40 years old saying, I would have been big in the NFL, but I injured myself in high school. Like, how do you go about grieving in a way that isn't a hindrance to future development? Like where it doesn't become your identity, but you also are not saying, I'm going to put that all in a box because that's not healthy as a therapist. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, you have to allow, give your space, give yourself the space for the grief because it's real. You know, and we can't, and I think inside, we talked about this, you know, we're so afraid of our emotions, but you know, you have to give your space, the self, the space to grieve. And look at me, I'm a total late bloomer. I'm 56, right? I didn't go back to school till I was 39 to be a therapist, got my doctorate at 45. You know, there's, there's hope. Yeah. There's hope and there's time. Yeah. Well, I know we're near the end of our time here. I want to just ask uh, two practical questions. One, um, I want to talk about somatic mindfulness. I know that's a topic of a podcast of its own. Yes. This is a term that I I just interviewed someone recently. We discussed a little bit, but just kind of your perspective on it. Um, And then the part two of that question would just be for someone who has never gone to therapy, is considering therapy. Um, I know, again, in our context, we were raised in therapy was preached against. It was not viewed as a viable option, but I know it's a very helpful thing. 
Um, yeah. How does someone go about finding a good therapist? Therapist, yes, which is tricky. Yeah. yeah. So somatic mindfulness is very simple. It's it's really you know we get so caught up in our thoughts, and I always say the ego really lives more in the thoughts or our defenses. But somatic mindfulness is simply paying attention to your sensations because that's where the emotions and the authentic self lives, and getting connected to them, and tracking you know grief and sadness in the throat, shame in the chest, anxiety in the belly. And learning to really connect to your body so you can connect to your emotional self. And then the second question is, yes, it's hard to find a good therapist. And I and I acknowledge that. And yet the research shows that more than what the therapist studies, it's the relationship between the patient and the therapist. So I would, first of all, take recommendations from friends. I would specifically, if you're in this sort of cult-like or trauma bond situation or getting out of it, find a therapist that's very well-versed in that. And even if they're not and you connect with them, willing to be very open to learn about it. And if you've experienced a lot of trauma, which if you've been in a cult or um, a religious cult or a trauma bond, find a therapist also that maybe can do EMDR because that can really help, right? And it's important to search for someone and take your time. You can go to two or three therapists. You can interview them. That's happened to me numerous times. You know, it's okay. But you will find somebody. There, there's a pot. There's a cover for every pot. I've become friends with a couple of therapists and I'm always love hearing that answer. And I, I love when they say, try a couple. Like, don't just yeah. the first one you find in the, yeah. Everyone uses the yellow pages. First one you find in the yellow pages and go, <laughs> oh, this is my this is my one that I'm going to use. The other uh, answer that one of my friends says, she's a trauma therapist. And um, she said, the first question to ask every therapist is, are you in therapy? That's right. They say, no, don't go. <laughs> that's exactly, that's a great advice. I love that. Listen, I really appreciate you joining me on this episode. And I know your book is going to be very helpful to my audience. Uh, before we close out, is there anything that, you know, I know writing a book is a big task. Is there anything that was on your mind or on your heart the whole time you were writing it that didn't get communicated in this episode that you hope people would take away when they put down this book? Oh, no, no, this has been a lovely, lovely conversation. And we touched on a lot of things. And, you know, I wrote my book for women everywhere. And it was a very, very hard task. And I wrote it. No, I just wrote it for them. Well, if you're yeah. listening, be sure to grab a copy of Run Like Hell. Um, I've read through it. It's it's an amazing read. I think it'll be very helpful and relatable to many people who are listening to this episode. Um, but for now, thank you so much for joining me on the show, and I'll see you in future episodes. Okay. Thank you so much, Eric. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. 